One of the things that we do when we gather together as God's people is we reflect on the word. And historically in the church, the word was uh, spoken out loud. It was proclaimed publicly for us to hear. And so we're going through the book of Ephesians in the month of July, and we're in Ephesians chapter 2. So you can kind of follow along with me. It says, You were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the curse of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guaranteed of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen. Ooh, this one went longer than the slides. I thought I was reading longer. I was like, man, but it's good. Um, So Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus. And right out of the gate, as he's writing to this church, he essentially tells us that we're dead on arrival. (laughs) That spiritually we're we're dead there's there's nothing for us we're we're broken people we are children of wrath as it says we need something to resuscitate us to to bring us life and ephesians 2 3 highlights this he says we are by nature children of wrath that means as children we are naturally inclined to turn against god and this theme, is, it's hard to hear, but it's repeated in Scripture in different ways. Or we're children of wrath. Or in Psalm 51, I'm going to read the message version. It says, you're the one I violated, and you've seen it all. You've seen the full extent of my evil. You have all the facts before you. Whatever you decide about me is fair. I've been out of step with you for a long time, in the wrong since before I was born. What you're after is truth from the inside out. Enter me then, conceive a new true life. So we're children of wrath, and I'm going to back up here to this previous verse. It says that we were in the wrong since before I was born. Another translation of this is that you were sinful from the time my mother conceived me, which sounds so unfair, right? 
But there's a sense that sort of woven into this brokenness of the world, we need something outside of us to give us new life because this brokenness permeates all of creation. And it does. As children of wrath, what we, what we naturally what we want to do, what we're inclined to do, is turn our back on God. And the reason why we do this is because none of us likes to be told what to do. I've never met anyone that likes to be told they're wrong, that they need to change the way they live, that they need to be different, that they need to act a different way, do something different with themselves. And this is what God in Christ calls us to do, to be completely different than the rest of the world. And so we, we bristle against it. And so what we find ourselves doing at times is we, we ignore God, we turn our back on him. We sometimes outright defy God, we turn against him, or many people just pretend he doesn't exist and does what they want to do anyway. But we're broken because it began in the beginning this way and has sifted down. That may happen in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve picked for themselves from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They took upon themselves, they wanted to be like God. And then everything went into disarray. Scripture says that the, the sins of our fathers will visit us to the third and fourth generation. There's this sense that it kind of continues on down the line. And I've said this in a sermon before. I like it when science also backs this up. There's this thing called epigenetics. And they've actually proven this genetically. Like the traumas that your, your parents experienced or your grandparents experienced, they actually get passed down in your DNA. It seems so unjust, right? <laughs> so unfair. But we can actually blame our parents, right? But this brokenness is in the middle of everything. And the temptation, I think, in our culture and the air that we breathe is to think that this is not true, that we are, by nature, good people, The temptation is to think that we, by our own will and effort, can somehow become what Christ calls us to become, or by our own effort, be a good person despite what anyone says, thinks, or feels. And what we end up doing is just spinning our tires and wearing ourselves down because we're not seeking the one who actually can breathe life into us. We're not seeking the one who can pull us out of that pit. And part of the, the problem, part of the struggle, as Paul says in Ephesians, is that there's this prince of the power of the air that the sons of disobedience follow. Those who disobey God, they follow the prince of the air, which is a quirky sort of passage, but it's talking about evil, the devil, Satan, brokenness. In a sense, it's in the, literally, it's in the air that we breathe. It's unavoidable. 
It's inescapable. It's oppressive. And so what do we do? What options do we have if we were born with it? It seems like we already are at a deficit, right? I mean, go up to six-month-old Timmy and tell the parents, oh, Timmy's so cute. I love that you have a child of wrath, Um, you know. Oh, look at that sweet child born in sin, so cute. You see? And what is God's word really driving us to? Well, Paul turns, he pivots after this. He, he begins to use past tense language. As he's talking to the people, he sort of sets up the predicament, the problem, which is uh, the problem that Scripture addresses throughout every page and letter, which is there's sin and there's brokenness and there's evil and we need a way out and there's no other way other than through Christ, through a Messiah, through a Deliverer. And he begins to talk to them about what's changed for them as they've been given new life. He says they were dead. That is to insinuate that that something's changed. They're no longer dead, but they're alive. There's a hope. They once walked in darkness. That is, at one time they did, but now they don't. Maybe they walk in the light. They once lived as children of wrath, maybe. But once in the past, it's something that they no longer do. They were by nature sinful, broken, but they were something that used to be but is not now. Paul is moving from a past tense into a a present reality. He's shifting their perspective on what was to what is in and through Christ Jesus. And that is in him they are made alive They are made new. It says that we are his workmanship. That is, he created you in Christ, prepared for you in advance something better than you could imagine or dream for yourself. Because you can't do it yourself. You have to rely fully and wholly on the one who lives outside of you and breathes new life into your broken spirit. And so how did this happen and and what does it look like? Well, it happened in Christ. It cost everything for Christ to have what you have. It did. He, He gave us this new life because he was willing to give up his life. He was willing to leave heaven and come to earth he was willing to descend into hell so that death could be defeated so that evil could be abolished and that you could have something new and different and could live something totally opposite of what you were born into i mean the gospel of john is common passion speaks to this john three sixteen, right For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, should not perish, but have eternal life. That is, this is what Christ does. He he gives himself up so that you, you have everything. Christ propels this forward. He he takes the brokenness jumble of 
the past, the brokenness jumble of what we're born into, and he redeems it through what he gave for us. In John 3, 21, it says, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his good works have been carried out in God. There's this sort of dichotomy or this tension, I think, sometimes in the Christian faith or the Christian walk where, where we're kind of walking a tightrope, where on one side we can think that if we work hard enough, if we do the right things, if we make all the right decisions, then we'll be good to go. And then on the other side, which is Christ did everything, he died for us, and it's a gift freely given. There's no work that we can do, and therefore we just live how we want to live. <laughs> and really, what we're asked to do is sort of stand in the middle of the tension between these two, where we know in Christ we are saved, and there's nothing we can do apart from him, but to, to know that, to know Jesus means that a good tree bears good fruit. It means that we follow Jesus. We go where he goes. We follow where he leads. And I love this verse. This is whoever does what is true comes to the light. Just ahead of this, it talks about those who avoid the light because the light reveals their darkness. A lot of times we, we don't want to see what we don't want to see. But the closer you get to the light, not only do you see more and more why you need the light that is Christ, but you also begin to see more and more that his good works have been carried out in God through you. This is what Paul says in Ephesians. He says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You begin to see more and more that the good things you do are you do because of him, not because of you, but because of him, through him, by him, for him, in him, by him. And you begin to diminish more and more as you give yourself up to Jesus. It's important to, to keep this intention because we can fake it, and this is why. You know, the closer you get to the light, the more you kind of see how much it's God doing the work and not you. Because a lot of times, like, you know, like, why are you in church this morning? I mean, there's a number of reasons maybe you're in church. Maybe, maybe your parents told you you had to come. Maybe it's because you feel compelled in Christ to be here. Like you, you are seeking him. Maybe in faith you're comforted by worship, by his presence in the body and blood, the bread and the wine, the reminder that we're forgiven. You see, coming to church doesn't save you. It's, it's not the salvation thing that we do. But coming to church doesn't make sense if you don't have faith and you're not saved. That's how a lot of things work. Like you can, 
Like I know people that know scripture really, really well. They can actually, I mean, they can read it in Greek and Hebrew. They can uh, read Latin. They know a lot of different doctrines and theologies and they can run circles around you. But then when push comes to shove, they don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe in the resurrection. And it's a wonderful story. And so knowing everything isn't salvation either. You can help an old woman across the street. You can feed the hungry. And it not be motivated at all by following Christ. It could be motivated by appearance, like wanting to look good. Maybe there's some social thing that happens if people see you do that. I mean, it's the right thing to do. Could be for National Honor Society hours, you know? You gotta earn those. But good works in and of themselves, going to church in and of itself, these, these are not the things that give you life. They're the things that flow out of it. I was thinking about this with the 745 people this morning. Like, you know what time they have to get up in the morning to come to church on Sunday? <laughs> like, why would you do that? <laughs> Unless it meant something to you. Like, they're more faithful than all of you. Hands down. <laughs> because they're driven by the community of faith and by experiencing Christ. But we all are. That's like when you are given life, you see Christ. And the more you get to see Christ, the more you come into the light, the more you realize it's like it like feeds itself. The more you realize you need him and the more you lean in, the more you lean in, the more you try to, to follow, to go where he goes, to, to, to lean into where he leads. And you do it because you know it cost him everything for you. And it changes your heart. It, it makes you a new creation. Crazy thing is, is Jesus gave it all up for you so that you could have new life, so that you wouldn't be dead on arrival, so that breath of his spirit could be part of you, resuscitate you. But as you follow Jesus, what you begin to understand and as you focus on scripture and you really understand is you also begin to realize it costs everything for you too. Like to follow Jesus costs you everything. It really does. And this is why Jesus, when he talks about it, he says like, it's like finding a treasure hidden in the field where we sell everything we have to get it. It's, it's like when you realize what it is, like you don't care about anything but what he's offering if you're willing to give it all up to have what he's offering, to, to go where he's going, your heart starts racing, you really want it, you want to experience it. It's what maybe would compel a man to pluck his eye out if it causes him to stumble. Because he hears the words of Christ and he sees the love. And because he's a new creation, he wants to be faithful. He wants to go where Christ leads him and he's willing to do things to be faithful that otherwise he might not be willing to do. I'm not, don't pluck out your eyes, please. It's the call that led the disciples to drop their nets 
and follow Jesus. It's like change careers, vocations, to walk away from that for a moment to follow this man who was willing to give it all. They gave it up to follow him. It's a call that brings us all here in repentance and forgiveness. It's what changes us. And so you are the workmanship of the Father. You have been created for so much more that has been laid out for you. Things that you don't fully see or understand, things that you have yet to experience and will experience. That he calls you as his, gives you new life. And that call compels you to go where he goes, to do what he says, to come into the light as we faithfully follow him together. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.